Okay, dedication time. Um, we're, we're with uh, Joel Thangaball, uh, Kyle Gothi from Gold Film Reviews with us, but he's been here before, and the guest is gets to dedicate. So, Joel, what would you like to dedicate this episode to? Or well, I'd like to get dedicated to my mom, who encouraged me to write and act and be creative. To my wife, Risa, who is a, a visual artist and finds such joy in getting into her studio and painting every day. To my kids, Brianna, who brings a smile into the world every day and thusly joy into everyone's life. My son, Noel, who is as geeky as his dad in so many ways and is carrying on the tradition. <laughs> and then three lovely grand boys so far who bring out the little boy and the sense of wonder and play in me. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. And today the guest is Joel Thingvall. Uh Joel's been doing movies for a long time. He also has a passion for theater as well as done the comic books. He's, so it's, he's kind of a three-person package. <laughs> um, and and, I, and I want to throw in the fourth. I you know, had a love of movies. I actually right. was a movie critic as part of my journalism career right. for almost well, 10 years. You did oh. journalism, right. Yeah. Um, when, you do, when you did uh, film critics, did you, did you get a press pass? Yes. So, mm. I mean, Kyle, I think he has press pass. Do you have one? I have some press passes for some events and some not so much. you got to fight. <laughs> Is there something – I mean, when you get a press pass, do you have to get it, like, renewed every year or – No, I mean, I, no, actually, you know, I was – I had regular gigs, mm -hmm. you know, so it was through whoever was handling the marketing mm -hmm. for different films. You know, I've, I went on junkets to Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and would always – meet whoever was coming through town at that time. <laughs> you know, like, like the Twin City Film Festival, which I didn't make it to, I wanted to go, because Eric Roberts was there. I mm. interviewed Eric Roberts at the North Star Restaurant when he came th in through King of the Gypsies, his first movie. That was uh, early 80s? Uh, it had to be like something like that, right? I want to say, no, I actually want to say like 78, mm. 79? Yeah. So that's when he's really starting out. Yes, yeah. it was in December when I went back to pull out the interview that I did with him. I discovered that that month, I, in that period, I had interviewed Lillian Gish. No I'd kidding. Gone down, she came in for a tribute at town with the Walker Art Center, I believe. Mm. I went down to Chicago, and I interviewed John Travolta and Lily Tomlin for Moment by Moment, one of the classic movies of all time. I interviewed Charlton Heston when he was plugging his book. I, you got him to sit down, or because he's? I heard that a lot of times when he does interviews, he prefers to stand. What What happened was he was doing a signing at Dayton's. Yeah. When he was done with the signing, I walked with him to the freight elevator, took the freight elevator down with him, walked him all the way out to the cab, and that was the time that I had to ask him questions. So he did sit. So he was walking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I, and I interviewed Eric Roberts, you yeah. know, for uh, King of the Gypsies. I think him uh, and Mickey Rourke were best friends in New York City, and they got together. I mean, before they even did Pulp of Greenwich Village, they, yep. they knew each other, and they actually grew up together and loved theater. And actually, if I think if you realize Eric Sauber, he was one of those that he hang around with tough kids, and he kept his interest in theater a secret. Him and Mickey Rourke ran around the number. Well, if they found out, like, you like theater, they'd probably get beat up. But he had to keep this yep. very <laughs> much a secret that he liked acting and movies and everything. Yep. And it's the only way that him and Mickey Rourke were able to correspond to them. <laughs> you know, thing to, yeah. But 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 it was it, it's fun because you know back then we got the people who were at like the beginning of their careers. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, I I met Robin Williams. Wow. For the movie, can I do it till I need glasses? Oh, which is a very obscure movie. Yes. Yeah. He was he was in town with the producer. I remember sitting in the Skyway screening room with that, and you know the the person handling the marketing for the film was laughing hilariously while us other six were just kind of going, and we got to go and meet 
these people at 10 o'clock you know there's a level of uncomfortability with yes. the film yeah. i remember i remember having <laughs> yeah. to find it after he passed yeah. away i was like trying to really deep dive in some some robin williams films and that was a find where i was like maybe this one will wait till later right <laughs> and you know i got to meet john landis for kentucky fried movie mm. Which is, I don't think you can make that movie now. Right. But it's, it's like, it's almost like what kids do now with montages. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was like a montage film of just sketch funny, sketch funny. But yeah. also had like fake commercials. And it's almost like a living uh, Mad TV magazine. Yeah. 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 Which I don't know if some of the jokes would actually be. There's a lot of Landis that wouldn't make it nowadays. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then like, uh, I, I still have the memories of Frank O'Nero from Force. 10 from Navarone, yes. riding down, again, the elevator. They put people up at the North Star for some reason, the hotel, which was in the IDS Center at that time. And, yeah. you know, he has those eyes that just shout, and mm-hmm. it was like no one recognized him. Yeah. <laughs> so you just waited around the elevators for different famous people to no, come no. by. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I just, I'm yeah. taking notes, you know. <laughs> you know, but, but uh, and, and I, uh, the other good one was, uh, the most popular screening, they had two screening rooms. They had one at the Skyway Theater, you know, which held about 25 people. Okay. And then they had one next to the um, the main one down, what's it called now, the downtown man or whatever. Mm. Yes. And that held like 50 people. It was more of a shotgun. That one, I remember, the screening was totally, all the seats were filled. People were sitting on the aisle and got to interview Russ Mayer. And Kit and Nativited was the most one of the most popular screenings I went mm-hmm. to for one of his uh, body. Yeah. <laughs> That's the right way, yeah. <laughs> so films. Well, have you, I mean, you've done a variety of stuff. Um, have you actually ever tried writing it? I mean, because you did journalism and stuff like that. Did you write screenplays and stuff. Okay, now what what's interesting was okay, I okay I I, I grew up in the. 50s and 60s. Yeah. Now you have to remember that back then we only had in Minnesota, we did have two, four, five, nine, eleven, five TV stations. Okay. <laughs> right. If the antenna right. worked, yeah. Yes. And they went off the air at midnight and started up again maybe at six. Yeah. We had Mel's matinee movie in the afternoon. We had the CBS and ABC movies. We had uh, Channel 11 was actually an independent station back then. So they might run a couple movies late at night, but you really didn't see a lot of movies. You had to go to the actual yeah. theaters. Yeah. And I, the first movie that I remember was a Sinbad movie that I saw at the Riverview Theater. I used to hang out at the Riverview and the Nile in South Minneapolis a lot. Okay. I remember for uh, one of my friends, his, I want to say, eighth birthday, I think we all went to see The Longest Day because mm. both his dad and his mom were in D-Day. They met after the landing and we were in the front row at the state theater you know i do remember a hard day's night at the nile theater in which i went up and sat in the cry booth because i couldn't hear anything because all the <laughs> girls were screaming yeah, their right, heads yeah. off you know yeah, anybody, nobody sat down yeah. for that one yeah yeah you know but the the amount of movies that you physically went to in a theater it was usually a matinee on the weekend and it was stuff like follow me boys and uh, fred mcmurray Boy Scout movie, or was in search of the castaways, yeah. or uh, again any of the Sinbad movies. I I do remember going to movies with my parents. I went to see Mondo Kani f- for some odd reason, which was a very odd movie to see when you're like nine, <laughs> nine or ten years old. Yeah. I remember seeing Otto Preminger's The Cardinal, which was you know a three hour movie with about the Catholic Church. And did they have an intermission? I don't remember. Okay, I think it did. And then, uh, then of course, the the big thing was I my first movie that I went to downtown was on Blocky. Was the original Cinerama Theater, where you saw this is Cinerama. I must have been six years old, and I do remember where you are in the front seat of the roller coaster and you're flying through the canyon, all the stuff that you see in IMAX now, but it was really yeah. big back then. And when you mm-hmm. had like three separate projectors. No, then, then they yes, did right? the three separate where they moved it out to the Cooper. Yeah. And of course, that was the event place mm. where you saw how the West was won, Brothers Grimm, 2001. Yeah. You know, uh, they 
all that they had for concessions was orange drink and these foreign candy bars, which cost, you know, 50 or 60 cents compared to whatever. And they had the smoking areas on the side, which were dimly lit, but you could just see all the smoke filtering up into the ceiling and everything. You know, but, but it was event things. And then even another memory that I have of early movies, besides you know, Planet of the Apes with the ending, which I saw at the Riverview, was uh, I was working for someone who... Love Simon and Garfunkel, and my mom wanted to go see uh, The Graduate because she heard so much about it. Mm. So here, I, I think I was 15 or something, and she, I went with her to see it at the Nile Theater. So you went with your mom to see The Graduate. Graduate. Okay. And that's not going to be awkward at all. No. And <laughs> oh, no, I, no, I mean, I, and, and when we're leaving the theater where there's people lined up, because remember, theaters only movies only showed in one theater back in those days. Yeah. My mom was hiding her face in case anyone would see <laughs> that she had gone to see this movie. Yeah. 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 I, but but well, no, we, we, we forget that, you know, movies played sometimes, you know, American Graffiti played for, you know, a year at the Skyway yeah. Theater. Yeah. You know, when Star Wars opened, it opened one of the few places at the St. Louis Park Theater and played there for, you know, six weeks. The only theater in the Twin Cities, of course, it held 800, 900,000 people. Mm -hmm. They did a 10 o'clock show, a midnight show. People lined up at 8 o'clock. And then they played at St. Paul, so now it was in two theaters in the Twin Cities. Mm. Yeah, I, well, we talked about it with my friend, uh, my cousin Dan, about when the Gone with the Wind was on TV in the 70s. And it, the re reason why that was pivotal is because nobody really, there's a lot of people who never saw it. Right. Mm -hmm. And never went to the theater to see it. And here's on television, and they kind of cropped it. But it was a three-day event, because like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they showed it because it's a three-hour movie. And it was pivotal because that was like the first time people ever, ever really saw the movie. So, yeah, television, I mean, I think it probably took about late 70s that predominantly movies got onto TV. Yeah, but it was only certain movies. Yeah. And, you know, they were bad prints or that. And then, you know, actually then I opened up more to movies when I started taking the bus downtown and I would go see a, two or three movies a week. And then my dad would pick me up on his way home from work. Yeah, you know, I would after school ends at three. I'd go downtown till you know five five thirty. I remember seeing you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Must have seen that a dozen times, you know. But the only way that you learned about movies in the good old days was you might find a script to read when they started doing published scripts. Mm -hmm. yeah. you would look at them with stills, and then later, as you know, I got out of high school, we discovered we had, you know, the Xanadu Film Club, which was beanbag chairs and couches and an old storefront okay. with a sheet where they would show 16 millimeter prints of film. Yeah. And we had the Uptown Theater when they started doing their uh, double features, you know, playing six, eight yeah. films a week yeah. of classic old ones. Or you would have, you know, the U Film Society or, or you know, as... Again, as got older, got into groups where people actually collected 16 millimeter films, mm -hmm. so you would, you know, sit back and be able to see them. But you just couldn't go out and say, uh, "Oh, I'm going to do a review of Taxi Driver." Now I have to figure out how am I going to see Main Streets or, you know, right. any of the mm -hmm. stuff that Scorsese did before. Mm -hmm. You just can't go and pick it up at a video store, which again, you know, was a Another oddity, you know, compared to now, the video store was whatever was available at the video store. Right. Mm -hmm. People think when the video yeah. store emerged that everything you had was ac accessible. No, it wasn't. And that wasn't entirely true. Yet there was certain lim – it was very limited when it first started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it still kind of is. Um, I, I don't know. Do you still have VHSs? <laughs> I've yeah. gotten rid of them all. <laughs> no. But, but no, I mean, I, we, I, I used to tape, you know. Right. We used to tape like crazy just oh, because yeah. we would have it. We would tape just TV. everything that came yeah. through. Right. If it was a film we hadn't seen or even one that we liked or, or didn't like, we would just tape everything and then over time just chip away at the tapes and decide right. what was going to get retaped. And yep. <laughs> I finally had a friend that figured out the best way to do it. He did everything in the four-hour mold, mm -hmm. and he did alphabetically two A movies on a tape. See, two that would have been a smart note. Yeah. See, why that, did I contact that's, that's people? I just had a big mixture with like scribbled over you know, right. Sharpie marker on yep. the side. Yep. Yeah. So – Going back, um, you probably saw how many movies, like, as a kid, I mean, it was like, like an adventure, right? It was yeah, almost I, like I, I didn't see as many as you would think, and like in junior high, we had Penny Movie at lunch, in which they would show, now get this, right. five minutes of a movie at the end of the hour, lunch hour for a penny. Oh, wow. Like you at know? school? Yeah. So you go up in the auditorium for the last five minutes of lunch, and you would watch five minutes of a movie 
and they would just serialize it over the course yeah, of, of you just gotta hope you don't get sick in the middle right like, right, you some right, major stuff, right you know right, right. <laughs> yeah it's like limp into school like got bronchitis but i really want to find out what happens <laughs> yes yeah you know it was the, the strangest thing in the world you know huh. uh, the five minute movies so spending when i like i like to little talk about a little bit about the old movies but what is the monumental thing that really is the big change from now to then what's the i mean obviously there's been a lot of little changes but what is the big change from when you were as a kid at seeing movies to what is uh, you can you can see anything pretty much now whenever you want to mm-hmm. and I, I we've talked we had andrew hunt on before and he talked about how that could be a minus too because people don't have the patience they see something they watch five minutes of it they don't what they're done with it or something like that. They don't have the monetary investment to like, I'm going to wait till I'll finish it to the end where some people like don't have the patience to see or, it. Or you still feel comfortable and you sit there and you, you know, watch so, the same, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I got, you know, 500 DVDs up in my room and it's like, I want to watch something and I click through the channel and Oh, support your local sheriff is on. I'm going to watch that again because I love it, you know, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You, you, you got things to choose from. You got Netflix to go on, you yeah. have Amazon Prime, anything else, you know, but you'll still watch that movie with commercials or you go see what is on demand and make your choice from there rather than. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, with movies as being a journalism and critique and being a movies, when you watch a new one, is there something that sticks out with you first of all, or something that you review, or you just overall enjoy it and then you think about it later? Uh, it's a, it's a lot enjoying movies. You know, when I, I I went back and I was looking, and my the first movie that I ever wrote a review of was on on a clear day you can see forever, which I wrote in my high school newspaper. I want to say that was 1970. And the first one I got paid for was, was when I was at St. Cloud State. I reviewed Johnny, Get Your Gun. And then I did a bunch of writing between 71 and 75, mainly book reviews, some fiction and that. Yeah. And then I had the honor of going to work for a cartoonist and his publication. Like like editorial comics? No. No. Okay. No. Uh, what, what happened was... I I went out to New York City in 1971, and I visited DC Comics. Jeff Rovin showed me around. He was an oh, assistant editor right. back then, and met Bridwell and Schwartz and other people. And then in 73, I went out again, and I went to Marvel Comics, and I sat down with Ween and Wolfman and well, Don yeah, McGregor, right, and yeah. you know, yeah. I was talking with them, and it's like, you know, what would it be to get, you know, what do you have to do to get a job here? And it's like, well, they only pay like $90 a week. You know, it's like really pitiful to live in New York City. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that was a year that I, I, I was out, I, I was doing the Boy Scout Jamboree as a Boy Scout okay. in Idaho. Hmm. And then went to New York and on the way back, stopped and visited Jim Strinkle in Reading, Pennsylvania, who I had corresponded a little bit with. Okay. Okay. Now, that was in the summer of 73, and in 74, Jim called me up and asked if I wanted to come on and work for him. Okay, this is getting, okay. Okay, and I said, yeah. <laughs> of course <laughs> you, know? yeah, 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 of course you go. Because Greg Kingston right. was just Great leaving, time. and Ken Brusnack was an assistant there with him, and I had started doing some stuff through the mail with Jim on Foom, yeah, and his yeah. very early comic scene, so I went out there, and I was out there for probably nine months, and I worked on Foom, I worked on media scene, comic scene, oh. I worked on the Stranko History of Comics, Volumes 4. <laughs> as, as, the, as the editor or? As no, for doing research and okay. story mm-hmm. synopsises. I did a whole bunch of the Bureau comics, Crime Does Not Pay, Boy, all of that kind of stuff. You know, again, he's yeah. only published two of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, it was an experience. Uh, he paid me a whopping seventy-five dollars. Look week. out! All right, <laughs> all right, all right. Look out! Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had a place to sleep. Mm-hmm. I slept in what was the dining room. Ken slept in the living room. We had all the TV dinners we could eat. You know, so it was free food. So yeah. the seventy-five bucks was basically spent on comics and <laughs> a little newsstand and that. And and it was in, enjoyable in a sense. Jim wasn't doing comics; he was doing the paperback cover paintings back then. Okay. You know, he would bring the paintings down and set them up. He 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 has a, he has a brownstone, which has a storage area, an office, 
the living room where Ken lived, the dining room where I lived, the kitchen, a back porch. Okay. He had that same space then on the second floor. My best recollection was when I was up on the second floor when I had met Jim before, was sitting in the living room and there was what you would make consider a coffee table, but it wasn't. It was canvases of shadow pulp paintings <laughs> <laughs> stacked high right. you know, yeah. on the floor. But, I mean, that was like, I would say, the, the beginning of the Bronze Age of comic books, what we could like the early 70s, where it kind of yeah. we got out of the Silver Age, and that yeah. was just the beginning of the Bronze, where kind of the rules are getting broken a little bit, and we're going to test waters and try to get out of the comic books code. Yeah. And you guys were kind of being a little, little, little bit of rebels. Mm. It, was, no, it was 1974, and, you know, it, it was... It was fun. I, I had an out, which I'll tell you about in a minute, okay. which I'll find hilarious. But uh, we used to, be, because we were in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is about equal distance to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York City, we would go to bed at 9.30 in the morning after the post office opened okay. because your whole life revolved around the post office, and then we'd wake up about 4 before the post office closed. Simply because you had to ship your You work. had to ship things. Yeah, you and can't then, just email a file out that back Right, then. Yeah. right. And we would sit and we would work all night because we could watch movies all night. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had stations from Philadelphia, stations from Washington, D.C., and stations from New York City. To now, i got to chuckle a lot because I sit here in my studio and I'm working on my comic books, but all the time movies are playing in the background. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like you guys. You have to have something that's going to constantly play. As well as you get, I've never got, when you have that going, like movies or something, you never get writer's block. You find something that can get you out of it. Yeah. 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 And see what, that brings me back to, you know, the different aspects of journalism that I've gone through. When I was in high school, I was taking English and I hated my junior year English class we were just reading books and all that, so then I transferred to journalism. I totally missed how to write news articles and that, but I became a fantastic headline writer for some reason. And then I was editor of the Roosevelt High School newspaper my senior year. And I think back, we did hot lead type. We did woodblock spacers when we would yeah. go to the printers and you process. would lay the piece of paper on to get the proof. When I was at Super Graphics with Stranko, we would send out everything to be typeset. We would bring it back. He didn't want to send it a second time, so we had a stat camera. So we would stat it up. If we were going to cut around a picture, we would actually cut out the lines of type and cut them apart and would use rubber cement. And we had these massive rubber cement tennis balls <laughs> that we would go over to pick up all the little <laughs> droppings of the rubber cement. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, later I was, you know, with another paper, we used wax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, run everything through a waxer and then lay it down, lift it up, and then eventually you just uh, have everything on the screen. You push a button and the page comes out. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to mention because of the, one of my favorite directors had a journalism background, and that was Sam Fuller. And you yeah. watch Sam Fuller movies, you can tell that he definitely had a journalism background because it does have that punch. He does have that hardcore sentiment of really get the almost like as a tabloid to him yeah the movies immediately starts away but i think journalism corresponds very well to films right and how you develop and how you keep interest and how you end your critique yeah. criticism as well yeah and also as part of the writing aspect i got into comics fandom right around 71 i you know i, I had been collecting comics now comics was strange back then because you would Find them at your drug stores, yeah. grocery stores, uh, places like the Five and Dime would have Dell Comics and Gold Key because they were tied in with uh, big little books that I mean, or the Golden Books that they would have in that. Um, I I was a latchkey kid. Both my parents worked. My dad was you know, a water bottler with the Teamsters. Really, you know, forever at Glenwood and Golden Spring Water, and my mom did door to door market research before moving into the office of a woman-owned and run market research company. Completely is, by women? Yeah. Well, wonderful. Yeah, oh, you okay. know, uh, so in, initially I, after, you know, first grade, second grade, I went in to particular houses to stay at over after school where they always had some older boys, so there was always comic books there, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, which was superheroes and, of course, Lone Ranger, all the Dell, the Western comics, war yeah. comics, Star Spangled, war stories, land that time forgot with the dinosaurs and all <laughs> of that. And then 
um, I stops from grade school were, you know, a couple mom-and-pop grocery stores that usually had three-bag comics with the tops ripped off. And then there was Jerry's Corner Drug Store, which was just a very small drug store. And you, I didn't realize till later that the reason that I never was introduced to Marvel Comics was that someone always beat me to the one or two copies that he got. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. But eventually, he was getting all of my allowance forgive me i you know got a dollar a week for being a good kid at home so he gave me a job there every week for two dollars worth of credit i got to check in his magazines (laughs) and pull the other ones off so i got first dibs and that's when i discovered marvel which was right at the end of 1964 it was the thor versus the hulk and it was spider-man cowering in the alley of sandman's and that's when it really kind of that's really really, really took right. off yeah and then from there it was i started you know every household had kids with comic books yeah you know on my i want to say in my four block area there were probably 15 kids suddenly when we got to junior high which expanded you know to kids within a mile and i discovered this other drugstore that had a spinner rack you know, yeah. another drugstore that had a spinner rack, so they had more comics. Because a store would only get so many comics. If they sold 25 comics, they'd get 50, and it would be just a, yeah. you know, a conglomeration of whatever was coming out. Well, this is good, because I think kids not familiar that if they go to comics, they go to a comic book store. That's yeah. only been a phenomenon since, like, the 90s. Yeah. And you and I, like, we had to go to the drugstore, yeah. go to the spin rack, and then if it wasn't there, you are lucked out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, by the time I got to junior high, half my neighborhood friends had quit collecting comics, but I managed to get their comics. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're done with that? I'll take it. I'll <laughs> yeah. Take it. You're yeah. trying to get rid of you know, but then, but then I discovered new people that collected comics and then discovered new places to find comics. I, I know for one year... The older kids kept it a secret. Oh, you, you want some old Marvels? Well, then they would show up the next week and have some old Marvels that then suddenly discovered they got it from the Nicola bookstore, which was on Nicola and Lake. Mm-hmm. Keep it a secret. Almost yeah, like a, yeah. yeah, where you could, <laughs> you where they had comics there. and what was the changing room and what used to be a dress shop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they were a nickel each or something back then. Nicola was part of what be, what was also Midway Book. It was a corresponding store in St. Paul. Tom Stransky with Midway Book originally worked at Nicola. He's probably been the oldest person uh, actually dealing with comics that's still around. Yeah, if in people town. Who are not familiar with St. Paul, they're on Snelling and what university? University. So Snelling University yep. is Midway Book, we, and they've been there forever. Yes. Yeah. And you know, this was from the late sixties that he started, and we had Art Souls in Northeast Minneapolis, which was an old bookstore. And then once you you know start taking the bus, you get downtown to Schinders, where they got you know two thousand comics a week. Yeah. And the original Schinders on Sixth was an outdoor newsstand. You know, started they, yes, started yeah, as where they would close up the wood doors, you know, oh. with the rain or have the awning and stuff like that. You know, so your your buying of comics increased the more mobility that you had. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you're interested. In a couple months from now, there's going to be a documentary about the dying industry of bookstores, of book collecting. And they're going to talk about the, the, the old guards of book collecting, the people that actually, if you go in their store and want to buy a book, they, they're disgruntled. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you want nah, you want to buy it? Darn it. All right. right. Yeah, because I think it's almost like that preservation for them rather than just be in business, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> no, no, no. And, yeah. and, and that's kind of what it was like. You know, I mean, again, I entered fandom. Fandom was fun because there were things called yeah. apazines where we would produce four or six pages every month or two months or three months. I was with Cap Alpha, which came out every month. It was founded by Jerry Bales. Roy Thomas was a member. Donna Maggie Thompson. Wonderful. You know, and it it, it it's still going since 1962. Yeah. It's been a well, monthly. Well, that's Appa. why I bring up this documentary because yeah. it's surprising. Even if you watch a trailer, and my gosh, I can't remember the title. If you want to just Google it. Um, but it says that the, the new kids are actually picking it up. The millennials are yep. actually doing it. Uh, my generation that has no interest in them anymore. But the new kids, actually, it's a fascinating thing of collect book collecting. has now It's skipped a gap of us where now the young kids are competing with the old. The boomers and the millennials are competing with bookstores. It's kind of <laughs> right. like you know buying yeah. vinyl again. Like we're, you know, right. there, there's something about that vintage classic feel, you know. I know my, my, do- my, my niece, who is a sophomore, just bought a record player. Yeah. <laughs> I got one for my 18th birthday. It was great. <laughs> but no, I mean, and yeah. in comics fandom, I met 
Anthony Tallin, who went on to become a colorist with DC and now kind of keeps the shadow and Doc Savage alive. Yeah. You know, I met, uh, uh, I was at the Minnesota Daily. I met Jim Schumeister, who was a political cartoonist there and went on to create the Great Atomic Aftermath Fresh Fruit Festival, which lasted a couple years and then did Levy's Law with NEA Syndicate. And through them, I met Oh, I met Tim Boxell, who was a political cartoonist, yep. and at the Daily, then became an underground cartoonist, and now just storyboard or did storyboards for uh, feature films out of San Francisco. And they introduced me to comics fandom, uh, comics in general, and all this time I was still collecting comics, accumulating yeah. comics, going backwards. I met George Olszewski, who was doing. Uh, Marvel indexes, and that was what kind of also led me to Stranko because we were going to do yeah. Marvel indexes before they did them. Is that part? Is that part of Marvel's like Fireside? They collect like. When I was doing, you know, uh, you know, the credits of who did what art, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the synopsises, all the characters. They came out the Marvel universes, I think. Yep. If you remember, or yeah. the little Marvel collector handbooks. That's what I was referring to. Yeah, because yeah, that's how the Marvel was really smart about. If you if the kids aren't buying this certain selection, you right. buy this handbook and then you get familiar with it. Yes. So they get onto another avenue of, oh, before they even buy it, they already have a little bit of history knowing about that kind of book rather than yeah. just buying it as something new. Yeah. Um, but, with, but no, so I went, yeah. so, you know, my life took, uh, you know, I went to the U of M in the summer of 70, sold actually my first piece of writing to the Minnesota Daily. Then I went to St. Cloud because I want to get away from home. But by accepting at the U of M and going in the summer, I could always come back. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? well, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I, I went to St. Cloud in the fall of 71. St. Cloud was a pretty good theater school back then. Okay. You know, the Twin Cities was kind of a theater mecca. I was taking an acting class and I was taking a speech class. I had two things happen. Uh, the acting teacher told me, why are you taking acting? You're bad. You're lousy. You know, because I... I know I, 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 I eventually got I, I got into acting because my mom put me into speech because I had speech impediments. Okay. You know, I was my S's were bad. My R's were bad and all of that. And I that was when I was probably 11, 12. And I took theater classes at McPhail. You either did McPhail or Children's Theater. I'm glad I did McPhail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Move along. <laughs> No, and yeah. and uh, a side story for from McPhail was uh, Hazel Amat, the teacher there. Her prize student was Nancy Nelson, who got a part in the movie Airport, which filmed here in right. nineteen sixty nine mm-hmm. or whatever. The, the winter of nineteen sixty nine, right. and then the show in seventy. Yeah. yeah, and that was the first movie that I was kind of ever in, because a call went out, and Hazel through Nancy had kind of an in and. My parents and I, we drove our car out to the airport so it could be in the parking lot scene and got paid $150 to have your car in the parking lot. And my parents and I were in the terminal way, way <laughs> Where if you waved at the camera, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't like, think everybody, uh, in the winter of 69 when they filmed the movie Airport here. Yeah, which there is, was uh, no snow. There was no, yeah, and they had to, like, traffic. I mean, you could see it in the movie how they just. Yeah, they just, they just threw the snow going. in front of a. Yeah. glass over the frame when they were doing post-production or something but you can t- it's still you can recognize the airport yes. it doesn't really i mean the exterior still looks the same yes um and they and they did shoot in the terminal yeah and the terminal looks which is really funny because it was totally no, empty was, there was <laughs> there's no baggage check if you watch yeah. the movies like nobody's checking bags you just right. can go freely whatever you want yeah. no one takes bags on planes. nobody checks no. bags yeah. on planes. but here they um, they wanted to shoot here because it would snow and it was the winter that it didn't <laughs> snow mm. The one time. The one time, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a great, you know, before we get, to, I'm going to get to break here, but there was a great um, Dean Martin, I think it was that guy. It's, it comes on, Johnny Carson. And um, Johnny asked, well, what's next for you? And he's like, well, I'm going to Minneapolis to film this airplane movie and fire my agent for making a movie in Minnesota in winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're back with uh, Joel right after this. From the galactic depths of the comic book universe comes the ghosts of the stratosphere, ready to galvanize and energize your mind with the latest of comic book news and reviews. And why why are you stopping me? 
Yes, that's much better. Hi, this is Andy Larson for Ghosts of the Stratosphere. Join me every week along with my co-hosts Rob Stewart and Chad Smith as well as a cavalcade of fantastic comic book guests as we dish out heaping helpings of the greatest and latest of comic book news and reviews. New shows posted every Tuesday with bonus shows every first Friday of the month. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher under Ghosts of the Stratosphere as well as on our website www.gotstratosphere.com Hope to see you soon, folks. Joel Thingvall, uh, we're talking about a little bit of the past days. Uh, what's something uh, new with you? What's something that's been go- going on that's new with you? Well, actually, I'm very excited about Max Bishop. Yes, let's talk no. about Max Bishop. Uh, it was uh, uh, directed by uh, a previous guest, uh, Jack Baranek. He was in here. Um, we've also had Chris on. Um, we've had the girls. Uh, Billy Straub has been on the show. So it's a very much a friend of the show. We're a friend of the film, too. And we're happy to have another, another cast member from the movie. It had, a, it had a fabulous reception at the Twin City Film Festival. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it actually works really well as a movie and hope that it can get distribution above and beyond, let's say, uh, Amazon Prime. <laughs> I think they're working on that. You know, it's it's something that I, I picture that could be playing at the Edina, you know, for a week or two. Mm-hmm. All yeah. the Edinas in the country, you know. Mm. How did you uh, become part of the part of the part of the film? Oh, actually, what was interesting, I I I, I got a call from Jack for a previous movie that he did, Daytimers. I think uh, Don, who was playing my silent partner and Max Bishop. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't do have it. to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he recommended me, you know, to Jack. And, you know, Jack had heard of me or seen me or something. And yeah. so I met Jack on that. And that, you know, filming with Jack is a unique experience because you go to New Ulm and you, I, I, in my case, I stayed overnight at his parents' house, which is like this old rooming house for uh, the brewery. <laughs> and, you know, and his mom cooks for the crew <laughs> i love directors of moms be the kate i love that like, yes yeah yes you know yeah. and what well, and and jack is such a unique director you know it's like he rehearses okay. he he he, bring, he brings you in and he rehearses and then he tapes it you know and goes over almost every line, sometimes even every word. He at least puts it on videotape. I, I, I have to say that, you know, a, a, a minor humorous frustration that I sometimes have with Jack is that he has, we're going to have a rehearsal. Can you come with your lines all memorized? Yes. You know, but we're not shooting, you know, Jack for, you know, like two more months after this. You know, I'm going to do like five other things before that, you know. And if, it, you know, when, when you're in, when you act, when you're in theater and stuff like that, there is a process to memorization. You memorize lines, you get comfortable with the way you move, yeah. the way you feel, at some, the way you interact, play with the pacing, the timing, and then you add props, which, you know, all of a sudden, oh, got a prop, you know. <laughs> now <laughs> I know what to do with something. Right. Yes. <laughs> now yeah. I know what yeah. to do with my hands. Yes. Yeah, let, let alone what your costume might feel like and everything else. There is kind of a process above and beyond just throwing lines back and forth. It's a lot different when you're on your feet actually talking on a location, which okay. is a frustration with films in some ways, especially independent films, because they don't allow for that rehearsal process. You Very show rarely, on, right. Yeah, you show up on the set, you might have you know, one or two run-throughs and maybe, you know, and then they shoot and then they do three takes, five takes, 20 takes, whatever. And and you don't shoot in order. You may shoot the end of page three followed by the beginning of page three. Right, if mm-hmm. you have the certain scene yeah. in the same location, you don't want to just pack all up. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. but, 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 you know, Jack would rehearse you. At least he had it on tape. So then when you do show up and you run 
you, you run it like with Chris. I'm sitting there running the scenes, and we do my close-ups. We do Chris's close-ups. We do the two-shot. We maybe yeah. do another angle. And my favorite Jack line is, that was really good. Can we do it one more time? <laughs> <laughs> and, and for Jack, it isn't always just a little piece. It's the whole they, they, scene. The whole thing. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of times, actors also forget, especially in film, that when you're doing a scene and you forget your line, keep doing the scene. Don't mm -hmm. just go, oh, God, dang it. I, oh, cut, cut, cut. Mm -hmm. No, you, you keep going mm -hmm. because they can work around that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just and like there might we be do. Some with... golden nugget near the end of that moment yeah. that yeah. you can bring with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I rarely, um, especially with this podcast, I rarely do a cut because I think it's something that, uh, you know, it'll eventually come around or correct itself or something like that. You know, just yeah. like when your underwear is a binder, you just kind of stand. Kind of wriggle through it. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, you know, when we're dealing with actors, one of my my favorite actors, I have a, I have a couple. Michael Caine is one, mm. but another is James Garner. Yeah. Well, you like support my local sheriff, yeah. Yes, yeah. you know, I love support your local sheriff. But James Garner, I remember reading in his book that when, uh, one of his first uh, Broadway shows, he was just basically a soldier. I'm forgetting what it was. Was it the Kane Mutiny Trial or whatever? I think it's the one with the marbles, but they didn't have any lines. You know, right. and other guy, the other guys would be sitting there, you could see in their mind that they're figuring out who their date was going to be the next night or doing something else. But he says, I just sat there and I listened. And I like to... When I work on a movie or a TV series, if they're not shooting my close-up or whatever, I will show up and read my lines opposite of the other person rather than let the stage manager do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because yeah. I think that's important because yeah. I am giving them my interpretation of the character, not just someone doing a monologue to get the reaction. Well, even if you're not in the camera, it's not your time to come on that you were you're sitting with them doing your character's lines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, and something they remember that that's the famous rift of on the waterfront is yep. Marlon refused to do that with Rod Steiger with the back of his scenes that they had a had a stage hand and Rod was unforgiving that Marlon would not do that for him. Right. <laughs> it's a good support system to have. Yeah. You know, I mean, your fellow actors are going through the same thing you are. So. Yes. Yeah. And and again, you know, that's why I mean, you do have rehearsals. You do stay in character sometimes you know you always want you sit there and you're doing something and you're going god should i say this i'm, I'm going to try and crack them up no <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to get out of that when you crack someone up i mean yeah. even if it's unintentional it, 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 you know, it, it's fun to do but it, but it's still film and it's still time mm -hmm. you know and sometimes Especially there's a time for it films. Yeah. yeah there is yeah. so little time yeah know, sometimes so. there's a time for it sometimes there's a place but you know when you're doing film so often well, something went wrong with the sound equipment. Oh, we didn't get the frame right. Uh, <laughs> things happen. Yeah. You know, and, and as an actor, it can be very frustrating. Like, I just did a dynamite take, and, then and the, they didn't get it. No, the, the boom mic wasn't in place. Right. Right. And, and then the other thing is, you know, the hardest part about acting is when you tell actors that you have to do the same thing over and over and over again as close as possible to how you did it the first time. That's kind of, that's equally frustrating for anybody, just constantly, you're right, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think I, I, we, I did a studio class that we did color, we had to pick a color, yellow, and we had to do this, you know, match it to something in reality, so I brought a banana, and you had to do it over, get that same color exactly over and over, and that gets tedious, and that gets frustrating, because you turned off to doing what you love to do. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, not all film, not all theater is improv. I mean, theater, you have to do the same thing. You have to, you know, hit your marks, open the door, answer the phone, you know, give someone a cue. Yeah, yeah. You know? and then it gets kind of almost to the part you feel like you're just an automatic, right? And, then, yeah. and you still have to keep it fresh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, again, is the toughest part. You have to still keep it, you know, fresh, as fresh on the 20th take as the first time you ever saw the line. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Uh, when you do an acting and you're always being on set, um, do you like working on the other parts, like behind the camera instead of in front? Actually, no. I mean, I, I, when, 
I think we left off before the commercial. I went to St. Cloud. Yeah. I had a I, wait. I, I, my mom put me in speech classes. Yep. I was at yep. McPhail. I did speech in high school, which was great. I did humorous interpretation, serious interpretation, original oratory. Mm -hmm. I'll pat myself and say I, I won state <laughs> right. in oh, dramatic right interpretation nice. by doing yeah. a Ernie Pyle piece. I did my first theater at age 16. I was a kid in the play JB, which is on the book of Job. And I was so enamored with the uh, script that I took the opening segment, which was between a character called Nichols and Zeus, uh, who's a balloon salesman, and yeah. a popcorn person at a circus that's set in kind of a circus environment where they decide to tell the story of Job. <laughs> and I combined them into a monologue, which I still use to this day. Still it's rehearsing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, for, uh, for theater yeah. especially, I can do it three, four, five, six different ways. Um, but, I, but when I went to St. Cloud and this teacher called me out, I was doing my monologue. And my, part of my monologue is, if God is God, he is not good. If God is good. And I was doing my D's as a T. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. but because naturally that was, but, and it worked back then, but he called me on it. Uh, but the irony was I was taking a speech class at the same time. Okay. Speech communication at St. Cloud. And that teacher grabbed me and put me in a reader's theater group that toured schools. I was the only freshman. So he likes the way that I talked. <laughs> you know, I maybe didn't always like the way that I talked because when I left St. Cloud in the winter of 72, yeah. came back to the U of M, they had just started a program called the BES program. It was called the Bachelor of Elected Studies. Your requirements were 180 credits. Okay. Uh, 180 yeah. credits. <laughs> in anything nice wow. you know yeah so i use that as an opportunity i i i have probably most of my master's credits in theater i got like 85 credits in theater and 40 in journalism and you know only so much in something else but i wasn't considered a theater major what because the, the yeah. i was in the elected studies yeah and you know and, 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 and the U was actually kind of strange. It was a pretty good theater department back then because it was an offshoot of the Guthrie. They had the good master's program where they would funnel people in. Uh, but you were either a part of the U or you would act on the stages or you weren't. Hmm. Okay. Now, the Twin Cities was a fantastic theater community. We had Children's Theater. We had Old Log at the beginning of Chanhassen. In yeah. the beginning of the 70s, we had Mixed Blood. Uh, out and about, which was a gay theater. Uh, and I think some of them are still going. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had um, uh, the Cricket Theater came in, later the Actors Theater. We had the Firehouse and the Ensemble Theater, which were kind of political reactionary yeah. theaters. We had Dudley Riggs. You know, we, we had the Storytellers. We had Shakespeare in the Streets. And I, I found a home with a group called Theater of Involvement, which was kind of a pseudo-religious church group on campus. They had their theater in the basement, and they had coffee cans with light bulbs in them. Those were the lights, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but well, they, you got to, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they, they did a lot of good work. And I also fell in with some undergrads who had gotten mad with the theater program and had started, were starting a group called the Playwrights Lab. Nice. which right. became the Playwright Center. Mm -hmm. So I started acting with them as an undergrad. And you also asked if I did creative writing or all of that. Yeah. I dabbled yeah. in that. I did write a play in 1973, which was before I went to Stranko and that. Yeah. I won the Jacksonville University Playwriting Contest. was one of the one acts. I went down there for eight weeks. Nice. You know, and got a, you know, a nice little check. Yeah, nice. And then I came back and I was taking a playwriting class at the U of M and I had already written another play which I pulled out at the you know last week of class I basically just came to class <laughs> and you know that was done by theater of involvement and I had another play done by the playwrights lab a couple of them I was one of the playwrights in residence with the lab in 77 you know had a Jerome Foundation grant and 
I had a Minneapolis Day Arts Board, Dayton Hudson Grant for another play that I did with the Pillsbury Cultural Center. You know, uh, the th- the theater back in the 70s yep. was huge because we had money coming from corporations. Mm. It was also a fantastic time to be an actor. This is all sprung from when the Guthrie came and created a good acting atmosphere, yeah. a professional. Yeah. But we had 3M, still exists. We had Control Data. We had Honeywell. We had Pillsbury. We had General Mills. We had Unisys. Um, all of these places created industrials, in-house that help, films. That would help in with the theater. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and there, were, there was lots of jobs for people. And amidst all of this, there was also a very small film community. We had something called Film in the Cities. Okay. It was largely for high school kids at the time in the mid-70s, Super 8, you know, and whatever other cameras. Sometimes they would get 16 millimeter, but you still had to develop the stuff. And then later on in the 70s with the advent of more portable videotape where the camera was, you know, I want to say, what is it? three feet by one feet with a long cord going to, you know, this <laughs> sewing machine that you would carry on your hip. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had timid video theater, yeah. which produced stuff like the attack of the burger pods. If you go and look at that. I love and that title. Mary mm-hmm. Tacky Moore and Godzilla, I think, destroys a Dinah. And <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. You still have a Super 8? <laughs> no? No, no, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and we, we yeah. had uh, <clears throat> a few movies starting to come to town. We had Peter Markle, who did The Personals. Yes. And he went on to do Hot Dog the Movie. Right, that's just equal as Kentucky Fried. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. we had uh, is a David Burton Morris who was doing like loose ends and Patty Rocks and stuff like that. And you know, I was I was in the theater community then. I had the I had the comic book store, which was kind of my weekly nut. Yeah. I was f- freelance writing. I wrote for everyone in town, the Entertainer and the Reader, which is like the equivalent of City Pages, Minneapolis Magazine. I did monthly films. I did uh, Tim Boxell, who was doing political cartoons for the African-American paper in town, hooked me up with them, and I did all the black exploitation films for them. You and, were, you, you were yeah, right, that yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, still, I, I was doing music movies for Insider, which was actually, did become City Pages, but was Sweet Potato in between. Mm. It was like the music magazine. And then at one point, I we had something called the Skyway News, which came out twice a week in downtown Minneapolis, and they had a sister publication on, which came on on Wednesdays called Freeway News, and I got that job where I did the Thank Goodness It's Friday column at the on the front page, Thank Goodness It's Friday, do we have a weekend of entertainment for you? We have, mm-hmm. you know, Steven Spielberg's Jaws at the Brookdale, we have, you know, so-and-so doing mixed blood theater, yeah. this yeah. comedian's, and, and the calendar, and for my $450 a month, I could write whatever I wanted. I like that. And I did, you know, four to five pieces for them a week. Mm. I like that. I like that. And I did movies and theater and had my little picture in my column called Screening Room. (laughs) And, you know, that lasted for, you know, two and a half years and whatever. And then I did theater. I did theater. I did did Stranko. I left Stranko to, I was going to tell you, was you're going to get a laugh out of this. Okay. To work at an international mime festival. What? <laughs> Want to say that again? <laughs> an international mime festival. The first international mime festival held in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, part, part of my early theater years from 71 to this time in 74, Yeah. you know, I kind of agreed with the acting teacher that I didn't love my voice. You know, I still didn't say things that well all the time. And I concentrated a lot more on movement and I got into clowning and flying. A little more out, yeah. Yeah, movement, stage movement. You know, I didn't have the ankles for ballet, but you know, I could fly a kite and 
I would, I would do I imitating. I, I would be in all a dozen people standing on the corner waiting for the bus, switching around between the banker and the yeah. hooker and the little kid and the working mm-hmm. mom and going yeah. back. And I would, you know, wear my striped shirt and my bell-bottom pants and suspenders and white face and beret and mimic people in the park. And I had my Pillsbury Doughboy outfit, my Perot Mime outfit. Was it like all white, like yes, a once part? White, white with a... No little pom poms on them in the filter. Oh, <laughs> I would love to see a picture of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, so I, I left Strangle to do the Mime Festival because, you know, it, 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 it was fun, but I could actually do better living in the Twin Cities. Yeah. It was like I always had this dream of doing comics, but I couldn't write action to that way. I get it. You know, I, I get could, it. I could, I, right. I, get you know, it. Yeah. I could write dialogue, and I could make more money writing a four hundred fifty dollar, four hundred fifty word movie review yeah. than a ten page comic book script. Mm. Nice. You know, yeah. and I was able to shuffle that my freelance writing for uh, starting in seventy five. The first movie that I did was Godfather Two for Minneapolis Magazine. Must and, be a forgotten film, I think. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard of this one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've heard of that one. I have to yeah. go back. Yeah, yeah. And, and that came yeah. because the Minnesota Daily was looking for film critics. Mm-hmm. So I went and threw together some reviews and went there and said, oh, no, we ran an ad by mistake. So I, oh, geez, okay. So I went down to Schinders and, oh, I picked up Insider. I picked up Minneapolis Magazine. They didn't have a film critic, so I went and they hired me. <laughs> Hmm. I love that because you like you feel I, you got a void and I can fill it in for you. Yeah, I, 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 I had yeah. done I had done the work, so yeah. was trying to figure out how to make the work pay. And also at this time, you know, my mom, bless her heart, encouraged me for the arts and everything. My dad was a teamster who worked for Glen Eagle with Springwater, and his favorite words to me was. Why don't you quit this stuff and come and work at the plant? I'll get you a job. <laughs> I love that. That's right. Uh, we've had, uh, we had uh, I can't remember uh, somebody, but uh, they talked about how Bruce Purcell talked about how his mom was waiting for him to get a real job. Right. right. <laughs> He's like, so. Right. You know, and, 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 and all these little things yeah. that I was doing were actually adding up quite well. And then when you get, you know, like a year grant, you yeah. know, Playwrights Lab was like $6,000. And that's that huge. That was $500. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. now you get a grant for playwriting, it's still $6,000. <laughs> you know, and that lasts <laughs> you got, right, two mm-hmm. months, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and and then I took off and I, I did a dinner theater in Colorado in 75. I did Is a, that, I mean, that, it's, it's a little bit different than regular theater isn't it a little right bit? We, we did repertory dinner theater yeah where we did in unsinkable molly brown a flea in her ear and the fantastics you know and then in 1976 i did theater lahamdu which was summer stock and we did 10 plays in 10 weeks that's that's excessive no you it? weren't yeah. in all 10 okay all i right. was in five of them but you would do shows wednesday through Sunday afternoon, you would rehearse. You you, you would you, you you would have a you know week to look through the script, but you would actually start once that play went up on Wednesday. You would yeah. be starting that, but you wouldn't get on the set until after the set was torn down Sunday night, and they were building it on Monday and Tuesday for a Wednesday show. Okay. You were also rehearsing, you know, let's say eight ten hours a day. Which, you is, know, which is yeah, ruling. Yeah, yeah. You, you're you're going to do you're going to do act one, you know, which let's say last an hour. You do it five hours. Yeah. Wow. You know, you do it five times mm-hmm. in five hours. Then you do act two, you know, for another five hours. Then you come back the next day and you put them both together. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, and and seriously, yeah. I mean, we. I know it. It, it yeah. seems really. You have to do that excessive amount of yeah. re- re- uh, rehearsal. But, but we yeah. did a lot of that with the Playwrights Lab. The joy of the Playwrights Lab was that the Playwrights Lab also took over the park board, Minneapolis Park Board storytellers who went around and did kids shows at the parks and schools. And you were able to pay directors, I think, 150 bucks and playwrights like 250 bucks and actors got 50 bucks a show. So suddenly you got this wealth of talent who then you brought in to do your own readings yeah. or your own minimalist productions where 
because you also had grant money, you could pay you know people ten bucks or twenty bucks. Yeah. And and you know you and you, you stop to think that at this period of time. Okay, I I was uh, you know. I I was doing everything. I was doing magic shows for Burger King. I was Merlin the magician. <laughs> you know, I had this big beard. And, I like that. And uh, Burger like. King was this big plastic-headed figure. And I got Merlin because I had done a production of Camelot at the Lakeshore Play. So you already had the Alfred. No, 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 <laughs> no. But the guy who was playing King Arthur was asked if, you know, approached to do it. And he said, no, but I know someone who could do it. <laughs> okay, that's how it that's <laughs> yeah. worked. Okay. And I had lines like, I spent many a night sitting around the round table, but never did I get a square meal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I sang songs like How to Handle a Whopper yeah. with Two Hands. Oh, I wonder what the Burger King is eating tonight. And <laughs> if ever I would eat at a Burger King, it would be a yumbo. And then, uh, you know, I later did Iggy the Iguana for the Science Museum. I had this big iguana head and a tail, and I had a microphone and the mask. And it sounds like a neck damage. Two people too, doing right? the science stuff, and I'd be, Hi, my name is Iggy. How does an iguana shake hands? And then I would shake my hands. Oh, <laughs> and we'd do like, "Welcome to the science clubhouse every Saturday." You know, I love it. There, there's all this stuff yeah. that you find that you end up doing when you do theater. And yeah. you know, I never really pictured going into film because film was outside. Did I want to go to Los Angeles? Did I want to go to New York? I had been right. To, those are the questions actors yeah, always have to ask. I'd been to right? New York. I'd spent two weeks in New York, and it was horrible i had never been to los angeles uh i might have had the opportunity i won't go into that because my wife might hear this but uh <laughs> 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 no. but but I, I i had i had the dreams of becoming a regional theater actor okay. but then you stop to think you know there's what 30 regional theaters each one of them has 20 30 40 people um I, to put in context, I ask people now, what do you want to do in theater? And they say, I want to act at the Guthrie. And I say, okay, how many people from Minnesota are acting at the Guthrie? Mm. Yeah, you know, there's probably three or four, and there are students at the U of M, and there might be you know, yeah. one. Right. Yeah. Huh. Joe, it's been a wonderful time having you on here, man. Now we had a lot of fun talking. This is oh, actually, yeah. I learned a lot more than I thought I would after. after I thought I knew a lot of, but. Uh, after just listening to you, I, I'm massively impressed about what the theater and acting is here in Minnesota. I, I yeah. just want to throw in real fast, you know. Go ahead. The, the, the whole big thing about film, during the 70s, yeah. and even then, they would shoot some movies in town, but it was more like, all of a sudden it's like, hey, we're, you know, we need people at First Avenue for Prince, you know, for Purple Rain. Mm. You know, do you want a free meal and 100 bucks? Well, yeah, I you know, had you know, free meal. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, come on up. You know, I do. I, so I, I'm a techie up in the booth at Purple Rain. You can see my, you know, hair highlighted from behind. Or whatever. oh my god, I'm going back to yeah, watch. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Or, or you know, I, so a lot of the movie stuff was, oh yeah, you know, the the word gets out that we need people to, you know, sit on a park bench when they're jogging in the personals, or it's you know, we need people at a church when they're breaking through the window and fooling around or we're filling the stadium and we need you know a cameraman or whatever for ice castles yeah. and I mean, a paid you know that's how you something. get it rick just show up that's yeah. half the half the battle is just showing up joe thanks again for coming on man okay. it'll be a lot of fun yeah. man as you know it's not over till the guest says it's over Finish. Oh, he's, he's not gonna do it. He's not gonna do it. <laughs>